Major Lindsay and Africa presents Bouncing Back, conversations about resilience for lawyers. Welcome to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. This podcast is brought to you by Major, Lindsay, and Africa, the global leader in legal search and consulting. I'm your host, Rebecca Glasser. I'm a managing director in the associate practice group at Major, Lindsay, and Africa. In this podcast, I'll speak to successful professionals about the hiccups, bumps, bruises, and setbacks they've experienced in their personal and professional lives, and how they ultimately bounce back to flourish. Today, my guest is Jonathan Olinger. Jonathan is a Vice President and Senior Associate General Counsel at Global Payments, a financial technology services company headquartered in Atlanta. At Global Payments, Jonathan leads the enterprise-wide vendor legal team. Among other things, Jonathan is responsible for technology licensing agreements and providing intellectual property counseling regarding patent and trade secret issues. Prior to joining Global Payments, Jonathan was an intellectual property litigation attorney at several firms in Atlanta. Jonathan holds a BS in aerospace engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology and earned his JD from Stanford Law School. First of all, welcome, Jonathan. Um, I want to get right into it. Your first and second years of law school were what I would describe as life-altering. Tell me what happened. (laughs) I think life altering, I think law school is life altering for pretty much everybody, especially those first and second years. Um, but yeah, no, my law school experience was fantastic. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Stanford, but you know, I kind of had two pretty defining life experiences during law school. The first was that um, during my first year of law school, I started the coming out process to friends and eventually family. And, you know, it's always a tumultuous process for anybody when it's part of their coming out. Um, I was very fortunate in that it was a very positive coming out experience, but I, you know, the stress of coming out is very real, no matter how positive the reactions may be. Um, also, in the spring of my, law, my uh, first year of law school, I received some pretty terrible news in that my mom um, received a terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, from the very beginning, I was a mama's boy, and um, you know, to, to have your hero, your partner, your best friend, receive a, a terminal diagnosis like that was pretty devastating. And yeah. um, I received that yeah. the spring of my first year of law school. And then by October of my second year of law school, my mom had passed away. Tumultuous and eventful and life-altering are some pretty apt terms to describe those first couple of years of law school. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine. I, I know I've told you this before, you know, I went to law school. That is also a traumatic experience for some of us. <laughs> uh, I think it was a little traumatic for me. Um, and I've lost a parent and I've also come out uh, about my sexual orientation to friends and family. And, you know, that in and of itself, and, you know, for me, that was the thing that happened first. You know, I came out in college and, yeah. you know, it's it's a process, you know, um, for for the uninitiated. It's not like you, you come out, snap your fingers, and yeah. that process is over, right? You are, you know, slowly but surely sort of tiptoeing your way out of the closet. You're, you know, picking um, initial people, at least I did, you know, who I felt would be safe, that I knew kind of their stance on homosexuality, and I knew that they would be accepting to me based on their behaviors in the past, and I I started there, right, and then you kind of take a little breath and you go, okay, 
that went okay. And then you slowly venture out and you think of another couple of people, you know, who you think will be okay with it. And it's really a lifelong experience. Um, and so I'm curious to just talk about that one piece. Um, sure. you, know, you started law school and then you came out, who did you come out to first? Was it your brother or was it friends? It was friends. It was friends in law school. You know, I think in some ways I'm not ashamed to say it, but I think the truth of the matter is, you know, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, went to undergrad in, in Georgia, and one of my clear intentions in the law school application process was to get out of the South. Um, yes. You know, I felt that this was going to be part of my journey, and I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I knew it was going to happen eventually, and so I wanted to get to a place where I didn't feel kind of encumbered or burdened by the, you know, the stereotypes of the Southern way of life, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I made the choice to go to Stanford in large part because I knew this was going to be part of my story. And I wanted to be in a more progressive, more accepting environment. And so getting to law school, I found that. And I found a, a wide group of friends and, um, and classmates that fully took me for who I was. And so the coming out process to them was very easy. Um, yes. and, and in some ways it wasn't necessarily a coming out process, right? Because they didn't know me, they didn't have the preconceived notions. It was just me telling my story on my own terms. It was great. Um, and yeah. then I also was fortunate to have a couple of college classmates that were at Stanford with me. Um, they were pursuing their PhDs while I was pursuing my JD program. And they were the next people that I came out to. And again, blown away by the positive um, response. But like you said, it's not as though it's like a coming out event. It is a series of events and it's a never ending yes. series of events, right? It's just yes, the nature, tenor, and length of the conversation is what changes over time. So it's great that you have had this sort of group of, you know, core group of friends who you were physically close to and emotionally close to that could be your supportive backbone if it didn't go well. And then you went away, you know, kind of dis physically distanced yourself, figuratively and actually distanced yourself from, you know, the Southeast um, where religion is prevalent and, you know, People are not necessarily, at least stereotypically, as open-minded, um, seemingly. Um, and I, I did a similar thing where <laughs> I came out to my parents, and then I just disappeared. I was had a scheduled trip to LA for two weeks, and I just left. I like dropped that bomb, and <laughs> I went to the other coast. So the ultimate mic drop moment. That's right. I didn't do it for three years, but I, I, <laughs> I was like, I gotta get away. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. you know, let, let you, simmer on that, and I'll come back when the when the feelings have died down, or you've kind of wrapped your head around this idea, parents. Um, but I also did the same thing too, where I created this like safety net of friends who were like, we've got your back, no matter what happens with you know your your parents or other loved ones, your family, you're good. Um, so I, you know, it's, this is a common theme. These are common themes and, and common things that happen um, amongst people who are LGBTQ and, and, and coming out, um, you know, midlife. So yeah. the friend thing went well, and went then great. you just, you told your brother next. You have one sibling. You just have the one brother. Yeah, I just have one brother, and he lives here in Atlanta, Georgia, as well. And um, my first summer, I came back to Atlanta to work at a law firm in town and was staying with my brother and, you know, took 
pretty much the entire summer to build up the courage to have that coming out conversation with him. But um, I was, I'm very fortunate to have a brother that is beyond understanding and supportive. Um, and so it's a positive conversation as well. And, um, you know, it was great to be able to have that conversation with my brother, knowing that my parents were at the time dealing with such an extreme trauma of my mom's illness and eventual passing. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I went through lots of turmoil and saying, you know, is this a conversation, is, com is the coming out conversation one that I can have with them right now? Or yes. is it just unnecessary stress to add to their lives at this moment? Because yeah. Yeah. it's going so well for me. I feel safe. I can hold yeah. on to this for a little bit longer if it's going to avoid making what's a, a difficult time even more difficult. From a timing perspective, you, you tell, so you come home, some, summer, you know, first year, summer, you, yep. you, you do summer courtship thing, you tell your bro, it goes, it, it goes well. Um, when did you find out about, I know this has been a sort of a recurring thing um, in your life in terms of your, your mother's illness, but when did you mm -hmm. find out about this sort of next bout of cancer? Was it that summer as well? No, I think it was, if I remember correctly, I want to say it was kind of like May that I found out that the cancer had spread to her brain and had become terminal. And of course, Stanford at the time was on um, a very extended, a different schedule from the rest of the nation. So I didn't start my summer associate until kind of mid-June at that point. Um, so found out May, went home for a week, started my summer associate um, clerkship experience, um, went back home for a week at the end of the summer and you know the deterioration was pretty aggressive at that point in my mom's health. Um, and then so went back to school um, in Stanford, I think September, um, you know, went back early for that, the, the, the 2L interview process that, you know, is stressful enough in and of itself. Um, and by October, it was kind of in the thick of that, the, the, in the thick of the interview process, going to firms for the interviews. And um, we'll never forget was you know at Stanford had an interview with the firm all day interview with the firm in San Francisco it started like 10 o'clock and as I'm on the road about to get onto the highway to go to San Francisco I get a call from my dad pull over and he tells me my mom had passed God, and um well let me, let me say, I get the call from my dad he told me my mom had passed and then I pull over because I'm like I can't drive right now <laughs> yeah yeah, um, yeah 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 it's just and, such and a wild experience yeah, well, and, you know, we, we don't like to talk about this, but at the end of the day, every child has their favorite parent and every parent has their favorite child. It's not, it's a very, like, faux pas thing. I am very much a daddy's <laughs> girl and, um, you know, I, I, so, you know, being the mama's boy, I'm sure it was just earth shattering, you know, for oh, me, yeah. it was earth shattering, you know, and I, I can't imagine. Um, what did you do? I mean, you pulled over, I'm sure you were sobbing mm -hmm. um, and bereft. Mm -hmm. What, yes. what, can you remember what happened in the ensuing minutes and hours after that? I remember that the first thing that I did was turn around, drive home, and email the partner that had set up my interview schedule to say, hey, I'm not coming for interviews today. My mom just passed away. Sorry, I'll yeah. talk, I'll reach out to you to reschedule, right? Which was just like yeah. one of those, you know, I think anybody that loses a parent, there's always like kind of, or anybody that experiences that, there's always kind of like this moment where like you're so detached from the grief that you're like autopilot, you know? Yeah. It's like, 
Let me do these yeah. three things so that I can then completely and totally lose it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so exactly. that's the, that was the very first thing that I did. I was so concerned about like making sure I didn't leave a bad impression on the law firm, even though my mom just passed away, that I right. goofily just had to cancel that interview. And then proceeded right. to kind of break down and like start reaching out to my close friends um, who had been with me through the process of my mom's like deteriorating health and then called them over to like, hey, I need somebody because um, I'm thousands of miles away from my family and I am thoroughly grieving right now. Yeah. And, you know, I can't help but sort of point out this sort of irony. I don't know if maybe that's the right word of you know, our our industry is, is, is such an interesting one, right? Where, you know, you're yeah. you're it's beat into you, you know, don't miss an OCI interview. Don't you know, <laughs> be on your your life depends on what happens your second summer. You know, Absolutely. I'm sure all of this dialogue was sort of going through your head because it's a universal thing for law school students that like this is, you know, your life and 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 your success in the industry hinges on what happens to El Summer, you know, and if it goes poorly, yeah. you are going to be a failure. I mean, this is the drumbeat that you get from year one on. Um, and so I also can't imagine, you know, it's like your mother dies. You've been sort of, I, I'm sure, probably doing some pre-grief, I would imagine, um, if you're anything like <laughs> me. My father yeah. had a protracted illness too, right? So you you have these moments where you're like, I, I know this is happening and I can't believe it's happening, and you know various versions of acceptance or non-acceptance, and then it happens, boom, and you know it's coming, but it's still shocking, right? When yeah. it happens. Um, no, I was I, I was fortunate yeah. enough. Um, you know, one of my good friends um, from college, her father was a pilot for Delta. And she had, you know, her family had a number of kind of buddy passes they get to utilize for, for those that don't know Delta buddy passes, just kind of, you know, a, a free ticket that you can utilize um, for a limited number of family members in the year. And so she was gracious enough. She knew that I was, my mom was not doing well. She was gracious enough to give me a buddy, a buddy pass to use to go visit my mom. Um, so I flew out the week before she passed. I got to spend a weekend with her. My brother drove up and we got to spend some time with her and, you know, it was very much like this is the last visit we're going to have with her. It was kind of, that was very clear as a part of our, our joining at that time. Um, and so I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to say goodbye in so many ways um, and very much grieved in that moment as well. But there's truly nothing that can prepare you for like the actual news that a loved one yeah. has had. Um, You're right. And so it was traumatic. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Um, and I also can't help, we didn't sort of get to this, but sort of going backwards. Um, mm -hmm. Did you ever get the opportunity to come out to her? Is that something that you decided to do or, you know, given the circumstances? I, I was curious, you know, in terms of whether you came yeah. out to her or not, and also your father and where that kind of fell in the midst of all this sort of chaos going on in your yeah, life? No, I think, you know, I, I, I thought about it long and hard as to whether or not that was something I wanted to do um, once I found out about her terminal illness. And, you know, it became very clear early on that the cancer, um, it was really kind of deprived my mom of her mental faculties. Um, and so I just decided, you know, 
this is a stress that um, my family's got going on. And I know I, I was, I'm a, I am very fortunate in that there was never a doubt in my mind that my parents would love me, support me, stand by me, accept me no matter what. Um, so, you know, at a certain point in time, it's like, I didn't, the coming out experience at that point was felt like it was more selfish for me than it was necessary for her. And so I never did um, come out to my mom. I was able to come out to my dad pretty shortly. I think within six months after my mom's passing, I had to come out to my dad. Um, and so I didn't come out to her. There were moments where I felt like, am I like not being honest with her? But I, you know, as so many parents later I'll tell you, parents always know what's going on in their children's lives. Um, right. Parents of LGBTQ right. kids, they always know their kid may be different in some way. They may not be able yeah. to exactly describe yeah. it, right? But they have, they have a sense. Yeah. Moms know things. Absolutely. Yeah. Moms pay attention. They're very, they they know what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I never felt guilty about that choice. Um, I felt like it was the right choice for my family in the moment. It's like, this is, this is um, all the attention and energy needs to focus my mom. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I I think, you know, you've got to do, one has to do what what is right for that per you know yourself in that moment, and you've got to if there's some self preservation in terms of I know you shared with me that as the cancer spread to her brain, you know she was not remembering things, and there's this idea yeah. of having to keep telling her that you're gay and to keep t- and then be reminded <laughs> when she asks, like, uh, you know, fear of, oh, I think, yeah. I think the fear of any person coming out of like how many times do I have to have this conversation with one person, right? Yeah, because um, it's exhausting. So it's, it's, it's exhausting. You have to prep yourself. You have to get that energy up, get the, get the endorphins flowing to be able to have, like, that fire flight experience as you're having the conversation of, like, I'm not going to go through this over and over again, especially right. if it's not, right. it's, not, it's not going to materially impact these final moments that we have with her. Exactly. And and like you said before, you know, it's it was sort of preserving the kind of interaction that you had with her. And also it, it was like, for both her and for you, <laughs> kind of yeah. self-preservation. And then also like my mother and my parent, you know, my dad is going through enough right now. Like, I'm not going to throw this on top of it. Um, you know, I'm losing my mom and he's losing his wife. Well, um, you know, you bounced back beautifully from that experience it, from an outsider looking in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like you know, I talk to lawyers all day, every day. And if I had a dollar, Jonathan, for every uh, young attorney or not so young attorney who wanted to go in house, I probably could retire um, right now <laughs> uh, because this is like, you know, to make partner or to go in house and be sort of practicing at sort of the highest levels of, you know, a, a legal department is like the golden goose of uh, the legal profession. And so tell me a bit about, like, I, I know, again, once it's instantaneous, you didn't click your fingers and suddenly become a VP at Global Payments, but um, walk me through that experience, sort of the immediate aftermath, kind of how you got through the next year, you know, the rest of law school, and then mm-hmm. kind of the aftermath. Yeah, no, I think for a, for a good long while, I just went into autopilot, right? I think anybody that experiences trauma knows that there's a period of time in which you're dealing with the trauma in the back of your mind and the front of your mind is like, let me put one foot in front of the other and just keep it going. Um, yeah. And I was extraordinarily fortunate to have classmates that were understanding and supportive, to have professors 
and administration at Stanford, they were understanding and very supportive. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you're happy with your law school choice, there's something about that law school other than, you know, what number, what rank they have in the year before, what their graduation rate is, what their employment rate is. There's something else about that law school that you chose that really matters. And for me, I think I, I chose Stanford because it felt like a very humane place to go to school, to go to law school, especially. And it, that was true a thousand times over um, in my mom's passing. So I felt very fortunate in that way. Because um, yeah. I, you know, I was able to go into autopilot and I had a support community that allowed it, like kept me going. Um, yeah. But then I, I think what I learned from that experience is, you know, resiliency is just such a critical part of the legal profession. I think to be a successful lawyer requires you to be resilient, whether it's the loss of emotion, the loss of um, feeling like you, your deposition didn't go as well, um, the loss of a client, the loss of a case. Like there's going to be losses as part of your career, no matter what. And how you respond and how and how you react is 95% of success in this career. And my mom's yeah. passing kind of gave me some of that, an early lesson in how to be resilient, right? That yes. it was, without a, without a doubt, the most traumatic experience of my life and the most difficult thing to have to get through, but I survived it, you know? Um, yes. Did I survive it intact? Not all the way, right away, right? It took some time right. to kind of put all the pieces back right. together. <laughs> um, yes. But I think, you know, the resiliency that I was able to demonstrate to myself in, in processing through that loss was really kind of foundational for how I handled the rest of my career. Um, I've been fortunate. I haven't had terrible losses in my career, terrible setbacks, but when I do have them, I, I think there's a confidence of knowing, you know, an old phrase that's oft repeated, but this too shall pass. Um, right. Very much was the lesson right. that I learned in my mom's passing. And I think Definitely. that served me very well in my career. Yeah. You know, when psychologists or counselors or sociologists study resilience, you know, one thing they talk about and something you hit on here is kind of having a support group, which you did a beautiful job of creating for yourself, uh, whether you knew that's what you were doing, um, you know, innately or, or whether it was sort of this very conscious thing or, a, you know, subconscious thing, you did that. Um, another thing they point to in terms of people who are resilient and get through really difficult things, whether that be you know, health issues or job loss or earthquakes or whatever, um, is this idea that they had some practice, you know, either they themselves or they had exemplary, they had people in their lives who showed them, this is how you get through the tough stuff. Um, and yep. I was curious, you know, when you sort of kind of look back on getting through just the tumult that you were going through during law school and everything that was going on, um, what comes to mind in terms of either experiences or people who kind of showed you how to do that? Um, you know, I think I've, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I think I've been fortunate to have lots of great examples of resilient people in my life, but I think one of the ones that I, I always, always turn to is um, my paternal grandmother, my dad's mom. Um, she is without a doubt like you know not to be the stereotypical black family that you know that big mama's house scene where it is that grandmother that is the central force in the family but my grandmother is very much that woman and um 
my dad's sister passed away in her 20s from cancer. And I know that that was a very difficult experience for my entire dad's family. But my grandmother, like, day after day after day, like, she is just so strong, so assured. Um, she, she is centered by her faith. Um, yeah. She is just in, you know, we may differ in what our, in how we are centered, but seeing that kind of example of just steadfastness of we can get through anything um, as long as you have that family and that, the friend group and that support system was such a key example in my life that I, I didn't realize until later in life how much of an example it was, but it is without question just like one of those, one of those forces in your life that just teaches you lessons at every moment without you realizing it's happening. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's like, the funny in, thing, right? You don't know what's happening, and then and then you look back on it as an older, wiser person and go, "Oh, yeah." Like yeah. I was being taught whether I knew it at the time. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is, you know, she had she had she and my grandfather um, had moved in with my parents right before my mom had passed. Um, they had stayed there for extended periods of time, and so she was there with my dad, holding his hands as my mom passed away. And um, I remember walking back into the house after flying back when my mom passed, and she was right there. She was just like, you know, this is tough, but you guys lean on each other, and we will get through this. And I, yeah. I kind of replayed that moment over and over again over the next year to year and a half as I was trying to figure out how to get through it. It's just like, you know, lean on my dad and my brother, and we will get through this, and we will all be better yeah. in for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You said, um, and you've told me this, and you said it in the podcast today, that, you know, for the first year you were on autopilot, so to speak, you know, sort of, <laughs> you, tamp, you tamp down the emotions because you got stuff to do, right? We don't have time yeah. to sort of reflect and cry, or we do, we do it for five seconds, and then we move on to, uh, you know, how am I going to get a job after law school and like, finishing my <laughs> final, doing whatever else that you're trying to do. Um, what kind of got you out of that like you know you you can only do that for so long right you and I know this like mm -hmm. it becomes dangerous to push the emotions down indefinitely you can't one can't do that and function well um uh you know and it's not something that we as a society talk about you know mental health is kind of still you know a little bit of a faux pas we don't you know we don't you don't talk about it in in good company and mixed company right um, <laughs> but you know it's, it's starting to sort of come out of the darkness and have some legitimacy and not be this thing that gets whispered about um but the reality of the matter is when you come through something so traumatic um at some point you got to actually deal with it you got to deal with the feeling yeah um, and I, i'm curious how that manifested for you yeah, no, um, funny enough, I was on autopilot for so long, that one of my closest friends in law school said to me at about a year in, like, where have you gone? The the person I became friends with is not present right now. Um, like, are, are you okay? You've gone through a traumatic thing, but you haven't talked about it. And it doesn't seem like mm -hmm. you've worked through it, and it seems like you've shut down. And so... Um, not surprisingly, yet another woman in my life willing to push me <laughs> um, <laughs> to to really kind of understand and confront whatever I'm going through and be able to talk about it in a safe space and in a safe way and say, like, I cannot let this experience control me. 
um, and, and prevent me from being who I am. And so yeah. um, it was a tough conversation to have, you know, very much, you know, not like a movie scene, but very much like somebody just absolutely telling you all the things you don't want to hear in a, in a moment in one conversation, but that are absolutely the things you have to hear in that moment. Yeah. Um, and I think what that taught me is, like you said, you, you have these, we develop these support systems around us and the importance of relying on them in the moments of need. And yeah. as I look back on the rest of my legal career, my personal life as well, you know, at every single place that I've worked, you, you find those people where not, you can be your full self and you can yes. join in the celebrations together and commiserate the downtimes together. And those yeah. kinds of people at every place in your career are just so critical to kind of maintaining some sort of health and sanity about the practice. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. You can't just have your head down, churning out no. briefs without, you know, this is why networking is so important. This is why bringing your true, full, honest self to work is important. Um, you know, the, the network can be both in firm and out of firm. It can be yep. from college or law school or wherever, but you got to have your people. Um, your you people. Have your people. Um, and I think there's something to, I, I very much have my people outside of work, but I think there is something really critical about having the, the, that group of people that understand the nature of our profession. And yeah. somebody that really understands what it's like when you want to complain about how am I going to meet my billable hour requirements this month, this year, whatever. How am I going to, how am I going to manage to write these five briefs in one week's time? And that people understanding yeah. what does what is the stress involved in that? Um, yeah. And I'm super fortunate that I've got you know I've got one of my best friends is a lawyer. She's never practiced with me, but she understands what being a lawyer is like, and we can vent together all the time. Um, and then I have lots of friends at my each of my places of work that understand that, whether they were my peers, my supervisors, um, that understand where you know you you realize I can trust in this person. And sometimes you just need to walk into somebody's office, close the door and complain and let it out yeah. so that you can <laughs> yeah. get back up and yeah. do the work, you know? That's right. That's right. And be human for a minute uh, yeah. and not, not just a, a marching lawyer. Well, let's talk no. about your, um, you know, your sort of path. We, we've, you know, sure. you've mentioned to me that everything that happened at law school sort of altered your worldview in the sense that, you know, you – kind of let go of the need for prestige in your life mm -hmm. and how that impacted your choices going forward, which then led to your current role. Would you um, shed some light of, on that um, and, and kind of how it's uh, affected your career post-law post school? Yeah, I think, you know, we all, I'm sure we've all read lots of literature about it, right? Most people going to law school are used to being high achievers. In whatever circle they grew up in, they were the, they were the top of the class, cream of the crop, whatever it may be. And we all also we all have that moment, whether it's before law school, in law school, or once you get into practice, where we have to confront and say, "Oh, there are a lot of people, a lot smarter, a lot better, or a lot more likely to succeed than I." Um, and there's always a question like, "How do you respond to that?" Um, yeah. And in my in my mom's passing, um, you know, she she dedicated herself to her career, 
and you know, but like work terribly long hours that probably weren't the most conducive to kind of get building up, um, and you know, building up an immune system that could withstand a major illness of cancer, right? And yes. I haven't, there's no autopsy to tell me that I'm right, but I wouldn't be surprised if somebody told my mom kind of worked herself death, right? Um, yeah, she was so committed to the excellence of her work. Um, yeah, and in that, I think my brother and I talked about this. You know, we both decided, like, I want to be successful, and I'm going to be successful no matter what, but I'm definitely not going to turn my life over to my work. I'm not going to work so much that I am unhealthy and that I am yeah. um, sacrificing a life worth living, a well lived life for work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, there are several points in my career of where, you know, whether it's a firm that wasn't a match for me or that ultimate decision that being at a firm was not what I wanted to do and making that move in-house where I had to really confront, you know, what what am I doing right now in my profession and what is the trajectory for me? And is that going to lead to that healthy, happy life? Um, it sounds yeah. so corny to say it, but it's real, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to be part of the statistics. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, self-harm or, um, you know, abusive coping mechanisms, um, I, I, that's not the path that I want to go down for my life. And so once I get to a place where I realize that where what I'm doing and the, the, the practice that I have in front of me is not a healthy one, got to make a change, make, make the choice to move because even if it's a quote-unquote more successful one, um, the success is not worth it. Yeah. You mentioned to me before, like, uh, you started at a firm uh, in Atlanta, and you know, wasn't the right fit. And, you know, there were some legitimate concerns. And I, I counsel some of my candidates about this, about, you know, being too jumpy, so to speak, you know, yeah. leaving uh, a firm too soon, even though you're not happy. Um, and you ultimately sort of made the decision to say, life's too short. Like, I, yeah. I don't care, you know, if there may be fallout for this, um, you know, for, for, you know, kind of having too many firms on my resume in such a short period of time, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I applaud you for, for doing that because, you know, life's too short to be miserable, uh, you know, for, for the rest Absolutely. of our lives. And like you said, you know, we, we spend so much time focusing on the resumes and the processes and like, you know, all the achievements. And you're worried, like, is this going to look bad on my resume? And ultimately, like, you got to stop living for the resume. Um, and I think yeah. that's where I've had the most happiness in my career is when I made choices where I was not li living for the resume, but living for, you know, a, a job and a, and a career path that I was happy with. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're, we've got a few more minutes here, and um, I want to hit one last thing. Uh, 2020 has been a difficult year for a lot of people, especially young, newly practicing attorneys. Um, many of them have been furloughed, laid off, pay cuts, uncertainty about their hours and the future of their careers. And not to mention, of course, like unevil, um, sorry, upheaval, forgive me, upheaval in their personal <laughs> lives. Um, Freudian slip there. And um, Many of them, especially like the millennials and the Gen Xers, were too young to really be impacted professionally during the Great Recession. Um, mm -hmm. So it's the first time in their adult lives that they're dealing with this level of just stress from all angles and, you know, this career uncertainty. What advice would you give to these young lawyers? 
I think the advice I would always give to young warriors is to exercise patience. Um, I think patience is a key part of resiliency, right? Um, I think when you, when I look at some of my colleagues that um, really got harmed in the Great Recession, because I graduated in 2008, and so yeah. my class was the class where we showed up in August and jobs were not available for at all, jobs were not available for six months, um, whatever you got hired, what practice group you got hired into did no longer exist at that firm, so pivot, <laughs> right? Um, there were a lot of things that were really hard for my classmates, and what I universally have seen are those that, you know, I think those that were able to exercise the patience to say, what I'm doing right now may not be ideal, but if I keep doing a good job at it, what comes next will, will sustain me. Um, I think those are ones that are thriving, you know. Um, yeah. I, one of my, one of the trademark friends, right? She got laid off from her firm before she even started, and she's now a general counsel of a major sports sports team here in the U.S., right? Um, yeah. And that, that, that kind of resiliency only comes with, with a certain degree of patience to know that, like, if I keep, if, I, if I'm certain of my path and I'm willing to do the work it takes to stay on it, um, I will be able to succeed eventually. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. Join us next time for another story about thriving after overcoming challenges. You can find Bouncing Back and other programming for lawyers on MLA's Legal Talk Network.